Welcome back to the Friends and Neighbors podcast. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and this week, Delaware's First Lady, Tracy Quinlan Carney, and Trauma Matters Delaware Chairperson, Dr. Julius Mullen Sr. Last week, to mark Mental Health Awareness Month, I hosted a benefit screening of my PBS documentary, Mr. Rogers and Me, at Theater N here in Wilmington. Afterwards, I led a panel with two mental health pioneers from right here in the first state, which, to the credit of these two, is also America's first trauma-informed state. First Lady Tracy Quillen Carney is a native Delawarean, born at the Dover Air Force Base and raised in Newcastle. A graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, she spent 15 years on the staff of then-Senator Joe Biden, and then another 15 as a senior administrator at Wilmington Friends School. One of her priorities as First Lady is advancing the effective recognition of and response to childhood trauma. Dr. Julius Mullen Sr., or Dr. J, earned his bachelor's, master's, and doctorate degrees from Wilmington University. He's a nationally certified and licensed professional mental health counselor and an executive leader with two decades of good works across leadership development, DEI, employee wellness, and youth resilience. He's the chief inclusion officer at Children and Families First and chairperson of the board for Trauma Matters Delaware. Here now, our discussion about Fred Rogers' legacy of care, what it means to be trauma-informed, and how we're all meeting this unique moment. Hey, Uh, thank you. Let's spend a second learning more about the origin story, Tracy, of Trauma Matters Delaware. Would you orient anyone who might not be familiar? I'll give, I'll give my husband a little credit here. I don't often do that, but I will do it here. When he signed the executive order calling on Delaware to become a trauma-informed state, and we sort of recognized in laying out how that was going to happen, that we needed a nonprofit backbone organization focused on trauma-informed strategies, promoting awareness, promoting, again, this kind of approaches to dealing with trauma, to making sure it's addressed. Because trauma is going to happen, right? Adversity is going to happen. It's whether or not it's addressed effectively that matters. And you heard Fred Rogers' own story. What really hurt was the grown-ups saying, pretend like the bullying doesn't bother you and they'll stop. And feeling not seen, not heard, not recognized by the adult reaction, uh, even more than the actions of the bullies themselves. That's when the effort became more formalized and became the the nonprofit Trauma Matters Delaware that we have today. But it's still mostly volunteers. It's still mostly focused on awareness at this point, trying to get employers, families, communities all involved, as well as the state agencies. And Dr. J, would you explain what is trauma-informed care and why is it something we all need to know about? Trauma-informed care is really apple pie, you know, you really can't argue with trauma-informed care. That's certainly, we follow the science, we embrace what has been proven in terms of what works. I think we just witness a heavy dose of what continues to be 
proven and what works in terms of go deep and keep it simple. As plainly stated as Mr. Rogers so eloquently indicated, but trauma-informed care is really about safety. It's about not only psychological safety, but physical safety from human being to human being. It's about empowering others, developing trust, cultural humility. I love that term in terms of I may not know everything about you in terms of your background and demographic labels, whatever those are, all the isms, but I'm going to stay at it. And there's such power in terms of being the centerpiece of trauma-informed care. So, so all the words are there, but it's really about people. It's about people caring about other people. It's really about what we just witnessed in terms of all those tremendous, as the kids say, all those gems that were dropped in terms of those quotes. So from a lay person and simply stated, trauma-informed care is Fred Rogers. I think, too, an illustration that Fred Rogers is a good example of is you saw the way people describe him. This is partly a personality factor, right? And the personality factor is kindness and focusing on the person you're with, being curious about other people's experience of being human. But it's also expertise, Fred Rogers learned a lot about early childhood and education. He learned a lot, not just about his own faith, the Presbyterian church. He learned about all faiths. He learned a lot about music. He wrote those songs in that show. And if you listen to the people who worked with him on the show, he was a perfectionist about things, how things came across. He cared about the quality and the rootedness in research and the intellectual side And then also that basic human kindness that sometimes I wonder what we're scared of Mm. when we're not willing to be fully present, when we're not willing to be open to the other person. I wonder what it is we're scared of that he wasn't scared of. And he does remind you, you know, you know, some people who are like that. I liked the thing. If I can do it 5% of the time, what he does 100% of the time, I'll consider myself a success. So we know people who do it somewhere between five and 100% of the time. And what that connection to those people feels like, it does have a transformational quality. It is a little bit magical. And part of it is be kind, have empathy. Um, In the Quaker tradition, recognize that there's that of God in everyone and find it and nurture it, including in yourself. Hmm. I keep learning stuff watching that and then, you know, folding in recent experience. As I listened back and just a few weeks ago, as I prepared for this, I realized that what Fred did for me in his study was create a safe space for me to be a thousand percent like a kid who was scared and hurt, but nobody really had ever asked me that question. You know, everyone's doing their best, right? But so I was really struck by that really is such a tremendous role modeling of sort of that care model you described. You just got like a massive immersion in the neighborhood, as we say. Absolutely. Um, what, what components of the film or of getting to know Fred a little bit better uh, spoke to you insofar as the work itself? My mother could not bond with me individually. 
I had a speech impediment. I was raised by a single grandfather. I still to this day, why a 57-year-old man said yes to an infant? <laughs> Maybe he was watching Fred Rogers. <laughs> but um, I think about my early school days and how I was literally mute for fear of being teased for stuttering. And I think about all of those side effects from those experiences and, you know, all the stuff that we hear about in terms of risk factors, you know, and the negative reinforcing environmental issues and challenges. But what resonates with me the most is it certainly took a team, developmental team from elementary to middle school to high school, even early days of of college uh, for transparency. I would skip the first day of college because you had to introduce yourself and that was quite traumatic. So I certainly had some undiagnosed anxiety issues. But what resonated with me was there were people who didn't say it, you know, but they sent a strong message. I believe in you. I love you, Jess the way you are. And there were certainly a few folks in my family, but there were others. There were school professionals. There were coaches, mentors, even early days of college, more mentors. Even today, more mentors. So this strong sense of sending a message throughout the lifespan of you belong. I think particularly with kids, which has been my focus, so that's a bias where I tend to go when we talk about these issues. Certainly, it applies. these issues are important across the lifespan. But recognizing, first of all, they talked about how Fred Rogers was never condescending in talking to kids. Anyone who is condescending in talking to kids is not paying attention, right? They're either misinformed. It's just not. These are the most authentic people on the planet. None of us should ever (laughs) talk down to kids because we're getting it backwards. Uh, But the other thing is just that every interaction leaves a mark for good or for ill. We do make that decision every second, that every second is an opportunity thing of what what mark are we going to leave this second with this person? And especially with kids, again, to go back to the film, the feelings of childhood last throughout our lives. When we remember that something that happened when we're, when I remember something that happened when I was five, I don't remember it as a 60 year old person. I remember what it felt like as a five year old person. I mean, those experiences run very deep. And my experience with uh, childhood trauma, very different from Doc's because no visible risk factors. Nobody would have thought I was at risk. And there really weren't any people involved who had bad intentions. Everybody had good intentions, but I would say, and I think this happens a lot, unaddressed trauma is largely the result of a lack of information, not bad intentions. Talking about things is so important and recognizing how experiences can affect people, especially children, and addressing it, talking to them honestly about it is so huge. I wonder to what degree it might even be useful to just unpack adverse childhood experiences a tiny bit for the room insofar as... When somebody first said to me, oh, it sounds like you had a pretty traumatic childhood. This is two, three years ago. I was like, what? Me? It was fine. 
But once you unpack that word a little, do a little Googling, you realize that this is a pretty universal experience. So I wonder if you guys could just do a little edumacating for the room to give us a little broader context on capital T, lowercase t, that this isn't just a, I stepped in an IED in Iraq thing. This is like a darn near every one of us thing. That's another uh, really fascinating question because what, what we tend to find in formal trainings or talks or conferences or even individual more intimate conversations, people in general have a limited, more laser-focused view of trauma. They think about military trauma or medical, physical health trauma. And it's ironic that the documentary um, highlighted obesity and how adverse childhood experiences started within the context of asking those 17,000 adults about what could else be uh, an issue or implications or correlations around adults who had challenges around obesity. So adverse childhood experiences certainly can be any number of circumstances what I'm trying to even scream from the mountaintops, there are babies being born right now into trauma, even conceived into trauma. When you're talking about abuse and poverty, families who have challenges with addictions or one of the most provocative adverse childhood experience is separation and divorce. So really teaching the masses about this expanded context and definition of adverse childhood experiences. And then there are more. And that there's a direct correlation to long-term health outcomes. Absolutely. Which, again, this is a Kaiser Permanente study from the 90s. And when I first read that, it was an aha. But then that, again, the universality or the sort of breadth of scope that you're really talking about. And to me, and this is the subject of my forthcoming movie, it just was so evident that it undergirds so much of what we're wrestling with as a people. And it's tied to, I'm glad you highlighted the physical health, because you catch people's attention quicker when you talk about physical health and heart disease and cancer and, and hypertension and diabetes, which is often correlated with eight out of the top 10 reasons why people die. I think, too, it's important to recognize, and this is, again, where conversation becomes so important. One of the things that defines trauma, something as trauma, is its effect on the individual. So you can't just look at the event. You can't just look at what happened. You have to look at its effect on somebody. I'm going to give a really old lady English major example. I remember when I read Moby Dick. There are two guys in that story who were hurt by this whale. One of them got over it and moved on, and one with very tragic consequences did not, right? So it's this idea that they shared an injury, but the wound was different for each of them. And that was really the first time I thought about that, how one experience could affect two people so differently. So you have to talk to people, and again, I'll, I'll focus on children, about the impact of an experience, the way... Mr. Rogers did with you about your parents getting divorced. You have to ask the question to find out how the person is being affected and not just look at the event itself. You maybe think of this 17-year-old about 10 years ago and she came in and there is a school of thought that you match by 
race and gender. So I was the only African-American on staff and this was an African-American female and it could not have been a worse idea, a more worse idea because her trauma was tied to a black male. But anyway, what I found out uh, after, you know, asking the ACE questions and going through the initial screening and so forth and so on, in my head, I was thinking that these two particular experiences just have to be the most traumatic for you. And by far, she didn't even blink. She said the most traumatic experience for me is when the police came and I was separated from my mom and dad. It wasn't the rape. It wasn't the witnessing two murders. It wasn't the molestation. It was being separated from my mom. So you have to talk to people and ask questions. And this goes back to why are we afraid to ask the questions? You know, I think we really have to examine that and get over ourselves, right? (laughs) And be willing to ask the questions and talk to each other is recognizing how much we have in common as human beings and how much we're responsible for each other as human beings. Dr. J, you, you touched on attunement with your mother and you also touched on the power of community and, or, or neighborhood to embrace the Fredism. Can you unpack those two ideas a little bit more? He says uh, you can all create safe neighborhoods to express your feelings and create healing. So attunement and community. If we don't know by now the power of community, the power of you need me, I need you, sometimes it just comes down to attunement, comes down to asking the questions. It comes down to going deep and slow and simple. And it may start with a conversation. I remember, recall having conversations even recently with people who are clearly different than me, not just by the isms, the physical isms, but uh, by in which they think and how they believe. So many times when you have conversations with people in an attuned way, uh, your mind can change, literally. And it just further reinforces of we need each other. We, we need therapists. We need system folks. We need legislative momentum. We need coaches. We need media folks. We need everyone. And I know that sounds cliche. It's apple pie. It's really true. It's really true. It's like so much of the messages that uh, Mr. Rogers articulated. Sounds cliche and apple pie, but it works. You know, the research and the common sense merge yet again uh, on the power of positive experiences. Positive experiences, it's been demonstrated, are more powerful than adverse experiences. We can make a difference. This is not, you know, trauma sounds like a a bad news word, but what we now know about it, it's actually good news because we know how much we can do. Positive interactions have more effect than adverse experiences. And that we, ha- we have to remember that. And again, look at the opportunities we have to have a positive interaction with each other. Hey, so there's going to be a chance for y'all to ask a question. Steven's got a microphone. Meantime, I'll, uh, I'll just throw one more out there. I, I've got a collection of quotes here. But here's a current fave that I'd love you guys' feedback on. When I was young and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would always say, look for the helpers. And how often do we not do that? And how often do we not help our children to do that when there's a scary or devastating even 
story on the news. We look for bad guys, right? I mean, maybe after 9-11, we recognized first responders in a way that we hadn't before and the true heroism and that kind of very dramatic illustration of helpers, right? But the helpers every day, the people who stop and do say to a kid when they're walking to school, are you okay? You look kind of upset. These are helpers, the people who bake your pie, right? The people who open the door for each other. I and mean, there, there are a lot of less dramatic examples of helpers as well. And we should look for them and we should highlight them. And we should say to children, look at what that man just did. Look at what that woman just did. Isn't that wonderful? I remember my dad, I don't even remember what happened, but I remember him saying of something that someone did, it was an act of love and the world was better for it. And how, if we take the time to go, that was an act of love and the world is better for it. We'll see a million a day if we look for them. Part of my journey in the last two years has been to learn about the brain a little bit, right? And the brain's designed to identify external danger. So I've tried to cultivate a practice to observe and appreciate beautiful things and have gratitude as sort of a countervailing force. And there's a little hack for you, people. It's good. For, it's good for the soul. Good for the soul. Um, it's, is there anybody out there who's got a question for this great panel? Yeah, I'm curious about this one woman um, in the movie was talking about looking at screens. And then here we are having gone through the pandemic. And really, we had to kind of get by by looking through screens. And, and I'm just curious, is it too soon to know what the... I don't want to say the damage, but the impact that, that, that that's had on our disassociation with one another. And do we have any idea how this might have impacted the kids who had to go through this? I've had many informal anecdotal conversations in my small, severe of experience. And once again, another gem that was dropped in terms of kids are bright too. And they're just shorter and younger. And we spend a tremendous amount of time talking to kids. And so often kids have shared some of the consequences from a direct experiential perspective, social isolation, distrust in the world, disconnectedness with the years that they lost developmentally, so much loss and grief in their families, in their communities. Racial disparities are certainly very difficult not to mention in terms of some of the consequences. You mentioned the neurological impact in terms of what all this does on the brain. There's researchers that are talking more about COVID being another legitimate uh, adverse childhood experience, uh, not only for the little kids, but the big kids as well, mainly from a neurological perspective. I'm sure there are research being done as we speak, but I would find it hard to believe that the brain has not been impacted around the disconnectedness and distrust and greater humanity and what that means in terms of increasing anxiety, increasing depression, increasing trauma, increasing addiction, increasing suicide, which tend to be rising. I usually don't answer data questions, <laughs> but I think, you know, if you followed some of the Surgeon General's work, loneliness and isolation, including for kids, was a problem already. 
it was big old underlined and highlighted by the pandemic. You know, maybe the silver lining is we started paying attention more. But certainly the pandemic reduced opportunities for the kinds of positive experiences we were talking about, the kind of buffering experiences that counteract adversity. There's no doubt that happened. If you, I do know the data of how many more emergency room visits there are among young people now. That statistic's incredible. Uh, but I'll leave the data to the, the PhDs. Those numbers all increase as you get younger, which makes sense both from an epigenetic standpoint and a modeling standpoint, but it's troubling when you start talking about 10, 12, 13 year olds today. And that's why the Surgeon General was just last Monday, I think, issued a report about isolation and, and steps there. So, Hi, it's Lindsay Pennington. And um, I actually think your question was really interesting because we were just kind of talking about that on the way in, in today. My friend Allie's here with me and I have no qualifications other than the fact that I am a mother. So we have two kids who are 9, 10, 11 years old who have gone through this pandemic. And what we've seen, what the outcome has been, is that there is a, a lack of meaningful conversation and there's a lack of strong, deep, simple friendships because they were isolated. And this came at this very pivotal point for a seven, eight, nine, ten year old where they're making these really impactful friendships. And they're now struggling because they've missed this window in which they were practicing to do that. To use a, a, a very interesting word that I really, really like is practice. Being a sports guy and coach, I freak out if a player missed one day of practice, <laughs> you know, in terms of the skill development, what you're gonna miss, you miss two years of practice particularly at a time when uh, your brain relies on the social connection and the peer influences and peer acceptances and all the problem solving and conflict resolution and, and social skill development. Missing two years of practice seems pretty logical to me in terms of what the consequences can be. And we're seeing the consequences not only with the little kids, but the big kids too. When you're out of practice, say you're a runner and you're out of practice, you haven't done it for a couple of years. You don't go out and run a 10K the first day, right? Start small. If you run into reluctance from other people, start even smaller and take those little wins. You know, take that run around the block as a win for day one. Don't expect the sprint the first day. Talking to kids, finding out what's comfortable for them when they need a rest, from trying to make friends. It was Dover days today, which is a big thing in Dover. I wear a colonial dress and stand up for a parade and wave and smile all day. I needed a nap after that, before I came here. And I knew that. And kids, I think, know it about themselves if we ask the questions, right? They'll be able to tell you. And the parents might need it too. Dr. J organized a high school panel for Trauma Awareness Month. It was the last year or the year before. And one of the kids said, look, Coming out of the pandemic is just as hard as going into it. And we need to slow down a little. And I thought that was so wise. And, you know, a 10th grade guy said that it's not going to all come back right away. And that is scary as a parent. That is very scary as a parent. But it's also, you know, we get our Fred Rogers calm on, right? And be patient with ourselves as well as our kids. 
So one thing that resonated a lot with me was the idea that folks are uncomfortable with silence. And that in the presence of silence, the default would be anxiety or boredom. How do you incorporate silence into your own lives to make space for it or for uh, your children as well? One thing that trauma tends to do to our bodies and brains is to disrupt our response and processing journey, particularly when you are reflecting and talking about something difficult. Silence can be kryptonite to allowing that freedom of space and time for people to process unapologetically. And you put it out there. I mean, just this morning, I was in treatment with a 62-year-old who lost his mom, and he really took advantage of these silent moments to process and reflect. I mean, it probably felt to him like a lifetime, but it went on like 30, 45 seconds. But he needed that. At the end, he reflected back on that. I needed that time just to not be pressured, to respond how I want, if at all. Sometimes silence means I'm not ready to respond. So embracing silence is certainly a, a skill and have to grow comfort in doing that. It is, and it's countercultural. I mean, you know, you saw about 10 seconds of dead air on TV. You could just see the producer in the background and you're going, <laughs> oh my God, he's not saying anything. I'm one of those people who has to process an experience for it to have really happened. <laughs> not everybody's like that. A lot of people can go from thing to th- activity to activity to activity. I can't do that. So it sort of comes natural to me to pause. But those of you who know our beloved governor, he goes and goes and goes and goes, and that's, that works for him. So our children have seen it modeled both ways. But I think in terms of them, directly talking to them, really basic breathing has been, as I, I know it sounds like a cliche, but take a deep breath and it will calm your body down. It will calm your mind down. Teaching, you know, inhale for four, exhale for eight. I mean, just really basic breathing stuff is probably the only direct instruction I gave to our kids. But they also, you know, again, coming out of the Quaker tradition, which translates fairly well into secular terms, if you don't want to do it from a religious aspect, they experienced meeting for worship, which is sitting in silence. So they had that experience as well. And I think every now and then one of them will say, I just need a moment of silence they had that background to bring. But I think just, again, basic breathing exercises for yourself, for your kids is a great place to start. What's one thing, one active step each of us can take to be contributing to a you know, deeper, simpler, healthier, more trauma-informed world? I think starting with taking 10 seconds to remember the people who have loved you into being is a really good start. Because I think once you do that, it softens you. It makes you more open to other people's experience of being human. Every interaction leaves a mark. And to take the time to recognize that and think, what do I want my interaction with this person at this moment to be? How can I leave a mark for good? It's so powerful if we just slow down a little, as the young man says, the 10th grader said, slow down a little, look at each other, recognize our common humanity and Okay, this interaction is going to leave a mark. What do I want it to be? 
looking in the mirror, asking yourself in terms of who was there for you. It can be family members. It can be anybody. Family members, coaches, mentors, teachers, preachers, so forth and so on. And don't stop there. What did they do? What was the concrete verb? What was the activity? How do you write it on a piece of paper? And imagine if those answers dictates and drives a job description across systems. Dad, mom, mentor, teacher, preacher, doctor, politician, media specialist, whatever. Start with the person in the mirror and go deeper. Friends and Neighbors podcast is an Essential Industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Please rate and review the podcast on your favorite platform. Not only does it help us to improve the show, but it also helps other people discover and join our neighborhood. Please visit friendsandneighborshow.com to listen to previous episodes or subscribe to our newsletter. We promise not to spam you, but we will deliver fresh and meaningful news and information straight to your inbox every week. And I'd love to hear from you directly. Drop me an email at benjaminbwagner at gmail.com. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends.